How to be happy. There is no more blissed-out state to be found in romantic poetry than that described at the start of William Wordsworth's poem Resolution and Independence, 1802. Here is what his friend S.T. Coleridge once called joyance everywhere, with the poet rejoicing at the new day's dawn, the very sky rejoicing in its birth. All things that love the sun are out of doors. The sky rejoices in the morning's birth. The grass is bright with raindrops. On the moors, the hare is running races in her mirth. And with her feet, she from the plashy earth raises a mist that, glittering in the sun, runs with her all the way, wherever she doth run. The charming image of the hare, her feet raising a watery trail in her wake, inspires the poet to similar joyfulness. I was a traveller then, upon the moor. I saw the hare that raced about with joy. I heard the woods and distant waters roar, or heard them not, as happy as a boy. The pleasant season did my heart employ. My old remembrances went from me wholly, and all the ways of men so vain and melancholy. The fleet beast causes Wordsworth to describe himself as happy as a boy. For Wordsworth, who believed that the child is father of the man, this is something singular, a form of pleasure, if we use the word pleasure as a shorthand term for happiness, which is ordered differently to adult forms of feeling. To Wordsworth, there are several types of happiness, and the boy's careless blisses and pleasures are distinct from those of the man. But adults, he implies, can re-experience this childlike happiness, as when the poet is happy as a boy. This has none of the negative connotations often raised by some comparisons between adults and children, such as the charge that someone is childish or puerile. Words of new, that adults and children are different, and though his adult consciousness was forged by the events of his early life, he was a different person as a grown-up than he had been as a child. In Tintin Abbey, the adult Wordsworth, returning to landscapes which he loved as a younger man, says that he has learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth. Thoughtless youth, that state is a fortunate one. Thoughtless here indicating that he has no cares or worries. Thoughtlessness is the key to a particular kind of romantic happiness, as illustrated in the description of the pleasant season in Resolution and Independence. At such moments, worldly cares are lifted from our shoulders and the dark thoughts that bear down on us are lost in the elation of childlike rapture. All of our old remembrances fall from us and everyday life is nowhere to be seen. So how can we be as happy as a boy or as a girl like the wild-eyed Dorothy Wordsworth in Tintin Abbey? Wordsworth claims memory as a means by which we can find sober pleasure in the wild ecstasies of childhood. Memory, he says, is a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies, a home for those sounds and harmonies within ourself. Tintin Abbey 
is partly about the experience of seeing somewhere or someone you've not seen since you were different. Not completely different, but different from how you are now. In other words, the other person hasn't changed, but you have. For in psychological terms, you now live in a world different from the one in which you lived previously. Something in our minds reacts with joy when we see the vapour trails left by certain memories. Keen readers of Wordsworth, a poet whose philosophy is rooted in the importance of childhood incidents, spots of time, he labels them, skating, hunting, playing boyish games, things which some might seem trivial. Students of Wordsworth know that some of his greatest pleasures are derived from their recollection, emotion recollected in tranquility, he calls it in his famous poem, Daffodils. So, in Tintin Abbey, the happiness of the backward eye need not be based in the momentous. We may remember great events in history, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 9-11, and so on. But it's the little things of our own lives, our own spots of time, that move us. An old friend's face, unseen since student days, the length of a dash hun's back, even a sweet wrapper of a brand long forgotten. The things we forget to remember, when they flash upon our inward eye, move us unexpectedly, prompting the sudden happiness of recollection. Whether we lose ourselves in memory or experience a momentary spasm of happiness, the important thing is that the experience liberates us from care. And that is vital. Sometimes life is best lived for the moment. In his poem, To a Skylark, Percy Bysshe Shelley tries to describe the sensation of being a blithe spirit, like the invisible bird above his head, whom he hears but not sees, whom he identifies as being in a state of creative ecstasy. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know. Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. The world should listen then, as I am listening now. The skylark is unselfconscious in its happiness. In that state it pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. What the romantics understood is that happiness thrives when we are released from the constraints that govern our behaviour in everyday life, when our psychological state allows us to forget ourselves, to stop worrying about how we might appear to others. In one of his greatest poems, The Immortality Ode, Wordsworth writes, Behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six-years darling of a pygmy size. This is true to our observation of small children. Their pleasures constantly erupt before them, newborn. It is a kind of madness, because the child is able so completely to forget itself and to invest its consciousness in the sensations and emotions that pass before it. When you see a child crying, watch what happens next. It stops crying and moves on to the next event in its new forming life, its next chance of happiness. What does that teach us? That bad experiences and unpleasant memories pass. Like small children, we have the prospect of new experiences and new joys. 
Possibility is one of the sources of happiness. Anticipation is as potent as pleasure itself. In his long autobiographical poem of 1805, The Prelude, Wordsworth talks about effort and expectation and desire and something evermore about to be. That sense of joy coming, the possibility of new joy, of new found happiness. Remember, you are never too old to have new adventures. The child, with its sack of toys, might have a particular favourite, but is willing to pull out a different one and give it a try. As adults, we should make a similar effort of will to open our minds to new experiences and possibilities. Try not to say no to every new opportunity. Ooh, I wouldn't like that. Gets us nowhere, blotting out pleasure and the possibility of pleasure in its rigidity of taste and habit. We cannot live our lives in childish raptures, however, and Wordsworth also hears the cadence of a more adult song, the still, sad music of humanity, as he puts it so beautifully in Tintin Abbey. A principal argument here is that the romantic poets can make you, in Wordsworth's words, skilful in self-knowledge. The unexamined life, to borrow another phrase, is not worth living. Now that claim was first, we are told, made by the Greek philosopher Socrates when on trial for his life. And it is he who is recalled by Wordsworth when, in his poem Character of the Happy Warrior, he reflects on how life should be lived. Who is the happy warrior? asked Wordsworth in the opening line. Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? And his model here, incidentally, for the happy warrior is the Admiral Lord Nelson himself. Wordsworth's answer is that the happy warrior is a generous spirit, alive to tenderness. The happy warrior does not cultivate ambition for himself. He does not stoop nor lie in wait for wealth or honours or for worldly state. He is happiest in the everyday, what Wordsworth calls the mild concerns of ordinary life. So even Nelson himself, the hero of Trafalgar, is in his life most happy in the everyday state, the mild concerns of ordinary life. So Wordsworth embraces the trivial. The happy warrior is most completely realised when surrounded by home-felt pleasures, that is, the pleasures of his family and friends. Sweet images, writes Wordsworth, which, wheresoe'er he be, are at his heart. Wordsworth's argument is that we too should cultivate the ability to keep the images of those we love at our hearts, even in the midst of turmoil. Love might not be all we need, but it is a large part of it. And the lodestone of happiness is love and family. The happy man, writes Wordsworth, is yet a soul whose master bias leans to home-felt pleasures and to gentle scenes, sweet images, which, wheresoe'er he be, are at his heart. And such fidelity, it is his darling passion to approve, more brave for this, that he hath much to love. Resolution and Independence by William Wordsworth
There was a roaring in the wind all night. The rain came heavily and fell in floods. But now the sun is rising calm and bright. The birds are singing in the distant woods. Over his own sweet voice the stock dove broods. The jay makes answer as the magpie chatters. And all the air is filled with pleasant noise of waters. All things that love the sun are out of doors. The sky rejoices in the morning's birth. The grass is bright with raindrops. On the moors the hare is running races in her mirth, and with her feet she from the plashy earth raises a mist that, glittering in the sun, runs with her all the way, wherever she doth run. I was a traveller then upon the moor. I saw the hare that raced about with joy. I heard the woods and distant waters roar, or heard them not, as happy as a boy. The pleasant season did my heart employ. My old remembrances went from me wholly, and all the ways of men, so vain and melancholy. But, as it sometimes chanceth, from the might of joys in minds that can no further go, as high as we have mounted in delight, in our dejection do we sink as low. To me that morning did it happen so, and fears and fancies thick upon me came, dim sadness and blind thoughts I knew not nor could name. I heard the skylark warbling in the sky, and I bethought me of the playful hare. Even such a happy child of earth am I, even as these blissful creatures do I fare. Far from the world I walk, and from all care. But there may come another day to me, solitude, pain of heart, distress, and poverty. My whole life I have lived in pleasant thought, as if life's business were a summer mood, as if all needful things would come unsought to genial faith, still rich in genial good. But how can he expect that others should build for him, sow for him, and at his call love him, who for himself will take no heed at all? I thought of Chatterton, the marvellous boy, the sleepless soul that perished in his pride, of him who walked in glory and in joy, following his plough along the mountainside. By our own spirits are we deified. We poets in our youth begin in gladness, but thereof come in the end despondency and madness. Now, whether it were by peculiar grace, a leading from above, a something given, yet it befell that in this lonely place, when I with these untoward thoughts had striven, Beside a pool, bare to the eye of heaven, I saw a man before me, unawares, the oldest man he seemed that ever wore grey hairs. As a huge stone is sometimes seen to lie, couched on the bald top of an eminence, wonder to all who do the same espy, 
by what means it could thither come and whence, so that it seems a thing endued with sense, like a sea-beast crawled forth that on a shelf of rock or sand reposeth, there to sun itself. Such seemed this man, not all alive, nor dead, nor all asleep, in his extreme old age. His body was bent double, feet and head coming together in life's pilgrimage, as if some dire constraint of pain or rage of sickness felt by him in times long past, a more than human weight upon his frame had cast. Himself he propped, limbs, body and pale face, upon a long grey staff of shaven wood, and still as I drew near with gentle pace, upon the margin of that moorish flood, motionless as a cloud the old man stood, that heareth not the loud winds when they call, and moveth altogether, if it move at all. At length, himself unsettling, he the pond stirred with his staff, and fixedly did look upon the muddy water, which he conned as if he had been reading in a book. And now a stranger's privilege I took, and drawing to his side, to him did say, This morning gives us promise of a glorious day. A gentle answer did the old man make, in courteous speech which forth he slowly drew. And him with further words I thus bespake, What occupation do you there pursue? This is a lonesome place for one like you. Ere he replied, a flash of mild surprise broke from the sable orbs of his yet vivid eyes. His words came feebly from a feeble chest, but each in solemn order followed each, with something of a lofty utterance dressed, choice word and measured phrase above the reach of ordinary men, a stately speech, such as grave livers do in Scotland use, religious men who give to God and man their dues. He told that to these waters he had come to gather leeches, being old and poor, employment hazardous and wearisome, and he had many hardships to endure. From pond to pond he roamed, from moor to moor, housing with God's good help, by choice or chance, and in this way he gained an honest maintenance. The old man still stood talking by my side, but now his voice to me was like a stream scarce heard, nor word from word could I divide, and the whole body of the man did seem like one whom I had met within a dream, or like a man from some far region sent to give me human strength by apt admonishment. My former thoughts returned, the fear that kills and hope that is unwilling to be fed, cold, pain and labour and all fleshly ills, and mighty poets in their misery dead. Perplexed and longing to be comforted, my question eagerly did I renew, how is it that you live? And what is it you do? He, with a smile, 
did then his words repeat, and said that, gathering leeches far and wide, he travelled, stirring thus about his feet the waters of the pools where they abide. Once I could meet with them on every side, but they have dwindled long by slow decay. Yet still I persevere and find them where I may. While he was talking thus, the lonely place, the old man's shape and speech all troubled me. In my mind's eye I seemed to see him pace about the weary moors continually, wandering about alone and silently. While I these thoughts within myself pursued, he having made a pause, the same discourse renewed. And soon with this he other matter blended, cheerfully uttered with demeanour kind, but stately in the main. And when he ended, I could have laughed myself to scorn to find in that decrepit man so firm a mind. God, said I, be my help and stay secure. I'll think of the leech-gatherer on the lonely moor.